Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. workshops and coaching on resilience and positivity in the face of adversity. Her first book, Laughing at Cancer, is about her own struggle overcoming cancer. Roz, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be on it, <laughs> Before your diagnosis, you were lecturing at Latrobe on health promotion and public health. What was life like for you then? Well, that was sort of my main day job, but on the side, I was running laughter yoga programs and um, a little bit of mindfulness as well. So, um, you know, pretty full, full life, two kids, husband, dog. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So, yeah, that's sort of where I was at. And had you worked with other people uh, before who themselves were struggling with cancer or similar things? Um, in running laughter yoga programs, I had run some um, for people, you know, um, support groups for people with cancer or who have had cancer, but it was certainly not a focus of mine and it wasn't a, an area that I particularly wanted to be in either. Really? <laughs> I suppose most of my work at that time in the laughter space was around, um, more community health or aged care. Uh, and I also used to run programs for my students, um, which was a lot of fun, and do a little bit of research around some of the therapeutic um, health benefits of laughter. So um, when it came to students, it was in terms of um, you know how it how it affected them before um, in terms of preparation for exams, anxiety levels, um, stress, ability to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I was also involved in um, yeah, preparing other research projects around um, laughter in a, yeah. Hello. So it was it, that you were using those sorts of tools that you ended up bringing into your struggle with cancer. To yeah, let's not call it a struggle. It wasn't a struggle? No. Okay, I, I think it? it's just something you face. It's not a struggle indicates, um, yeah, I just, again, I'm... Like one of the things that sort of came out of my experience um, with the bowel cancer was was really f- focusing in on the language that we use. Mm-hmm. So words harm, words heal. What is the most empowering language we can use when, um, for, when, when sort of in the midst of adversity, whether that's through ill health, relationships, whatever, something about struggle, it doesn't sound like a very empowering mm-hmm. word. So... Um, and talking about empowering, um, you know, one of the things, the, the first thing that I suppose I was um, hit by um, when, when I did get the cancer diagnosis was, was other people's reactions to that. And they were a bit mismatched perhaps to mine. So the immediate thing was, you know, that I had the big C. Well, mm. I was not happy about that that. Um, terminology as far as I was concerned and I had my fingers crossed um, it was going to be um, you know that it was a malignant polyp in the rectum um, and it was very contained it was very specific and therefore the little c um, enabled the rest of me to be in a state of, of health and and that is a much more empowering way to face any form of, of challenge or illness. So, you know, to, to highlight the wellness as opposed to the illness. Mm. So the mantra, for example, during that time was I let doctors take charge of the illness, but I took charge of my wellness. And I knew that they were the experts in the illness, but I had to empower myself to be the expert in wellness. Oh, that's that's amazing. So your, your conception at the time, instead of thinking of like, oh, now now this is what I am, I'm a cancer patient. It was yeah. like, no, there is a cancer and it's yes. this small contained thing that we're fighting. Yes. And then and then the rest of me is still me. Correct. That's okay. And I'm, I think I'm, that's really helpful also in terms of interactions with other people. Um, you know, often, you know, people who have any sort of form of, of diagnosis, you know, the focus is on that and all of a sudden them as a person 
is relegated to secondary mm. and it's very frustrating because you just you just want your interactions to be the same and and sure you wish that you could sort of you know get an eraser and sort of you know rub out this particular um big thing but um you know sometimes it's you know just just to have that normalcy is is, is actually really important for one's well-being it's really interesting i found like a similar sort of phenomenon obviously not to the same degree perhaps but um there's a there's a tendency in, in all sorts of spheres of life, from like the most mundane up, uh, to sort of interact with people who are in a certain role and then to see them as the role. Yes. Like walking into Starbucks and seeing the barista as a barista rather yes. than a person yes. who happens to be paying the bills right yes. now by serving you coffee. Yes, that's 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 a very good point. Um, and I also liken it in terms of, um, you know, to say it's much it's a much sort of, I think, nicer thing to say, you know, somebody who has a disability as opposed to being disabled. Mm. It, it, it's sort of, you know, or someone who has diabetes as opposed to being diabetic. Again, it's 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 focusing on the whole person. Um, as opposed to whatever you know, the barista, the diabetes, the the disability. Um, so yeah, and it's and and I mean, some people might think it's semantics, but it, but it's 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 far deeper than that. Yeah, well, the language you use frames the way we see the world. That's right. That's wow. right. Okay, so I want to I want to keep this sort of in mind while we keep talking because this this is fascinating to me, and it, it sounds like. The you've thought about this at a really deep level for a long time. Yes. This um, let's let's go back. Like, do you remember uh, if you're comfortable talking about it, the day when you got the diagnosis and how you reacted versus other people? Sure. Um, I think that those sorts of days are never days that one forgets. Um, so it was it was a interesting um situation in that I'd had some um digestive issues and um, sort of a year or two before that I'd had a, um, a Giardia parasite that we assume I must have got from a, a family holiday in Thailand. So the so the side of sort of, you know, some mucus or blood in my stool, it wasn't like particularly alarming, mm-hmm. but my GP sent me along for um, a gastroscopy and colonoscopy, which I had. And then I sort of woke up from the anesthesia and the gastroenterologist, you know, said to me, you're one lucky lady. We've just removed a a polyp from your um, bowel, but, you know, everything's fine. Don't need to see you again. See you later. So I went back to my life, you know, had a colonoscopy. It wasn't the most pleasant thing, but wasn't the worst thing in the world. And um, then four or five days later, that phone call that really no one expects to receive that basically um, this polyp wasn't in fact um a, a benign one it was rather a, a rather nasty one and that um, in addition to that there were some of the cancerous cells outside that polyp so i was left with um i was told that you know i would therefore need to to be referred to a colorectal specialist um f- to discuss what what the next steps were so you know, I suppose it's 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 a bit of a um, cliched thing to say. You know that the you know that the rug was ripped out rudely from under your feet, but that's what it really felt like. It's it's all of a sudden like, well, how did this happen? You know, now what now what happens? And um, ironically, it was on my forty third birthday that I that I had the scheduled meeting with the um, colorectal specialist, and it really was a birthday gift. No, it really was. Um, I mean, otherwise, you know, who knows what, what would have been had I not gone down that that track. But essentially I was given, um, I was very, very lucky in that I was given options. I wasn't told what I had to do. I was given options. Okay. So that's, that's very important in terms of feeling empowered. So option one was to do nothing more. Um, and, you know, the polyp had been removed and essentially I could walk around the re- for the rest of my life, you know, hoping that that was it. Option two was to do a partial bowel resection. So that would be to remove more of the bowel to sort of ensure that, you know, there's a much greater chance that, you know, the cancer hadn't spread. But in all of the advancements of of medical technology, um, hard to believe, Ike, but true, um, in that particular part of your body, the only way to assess the lymph nodes to actually test whether the cancer has gone outside of those bowel walls is to do a full bowel resection so that is a quite a major operation and depending on where um, you may have a a cancerous sort of growth in your bowel depends on on whether you need a 
ileostomy, like a bag um, or a colostomy that you sort of have um, that you wear on the outside. So I was basically told that, um, yeah, if I had a full bowel resection, to, in order to enable healing, I would need, in all probability, a temporary ileostomy um, to to enable um, better healing of, of the bowel. Um, so with two children aged 12 and 15 and a life ahead that I very much wanted to lead, um, I opted for the, the full bowel resection. And um, thankfully the operation went well um, and we found out that the cancer hadn't spread. Um, so I didn't need any subsequent treatment other than that. And then four months after that particular, the bowel resection, then the bowel was reconnected. Um, so um, the ileostomy was removed. Great. And so from that point on, it was a matter of um, just like the, the the slow healing process. Correct. Okay. When you were going through this, when did you start writing? Good question. Immediately. It was it was just an it was just one of those things that you sort of I think it's quite a natural response. You you get sort of like a you just become totally overwhelmed. Well, for me, the natural response was to pick up a pen and try and process what was going on because I couldn't I couldn't do it any other way than that. Mm. And so that's what I did um, from from basically day one. Um, I got a, I bought a journal and I started writing. And the amazing thing about um, that process was the ability for when I had pen in hand it sort of it gave me a bit of distance it gave me a different perspective to my lived experience it enabled me to challenge some of the thoughts it was a much more sort of thoughtful um, process than my lived experience that might have sort of consisted of panic or fear or Mm -hmm. things Um, and very very early on into my writing I realized um, I, I had all these questions um, for, um, you know, I just kept posing these questions. I ended up getting these sticky notes and at the end of each entry I'd sort of, you know, think, I wonder what, you know, other people would sort of think about this. I wonder if other people have had issues with, um, you know, cancer being referred to, the big C. I wonder if other people have had issues about, um, you know, what whatever it is. So in a way, I started a conversation with this imagined audience, um, which was cathartic for me, but in the at the end, it was the aim was for it to be cathartic for an audience in the future. Mm-hmm. Not that I knew when I was going to publish it or whatever, but I did make a commitment to myself that I would journal through this and that um, in whatever way I could, I would um, really... Um, aim for my experience to um, be um, for the greater good. Mm-hmm. Did you find that uh, responding with your own training in, in lofty yoga was something that happened naturally or did you have to remind yourself, oh, wait, I've, pre- I've prepared for this sort of thing? Yeah, it's, um, it's see, this is the thing, these, these lessons in life, hey? Um, you know, I've been very good about preaching about laughter being mm-hmm. the best medicine and, you know, there's something very powerful um, and quite, um, quite, quite extraordinary about any form of abdominal surgery or if you've had a cesarean section, you're going to have had one, um, <laughs> is that you physically cannot laugh for a period of weeks afterwards really? because it is so painful. So here was something that I had taken for granted my whole life and essentially it was taken away from me for about five or so weeks. I couldn't laugh even if I wanted to. The interesting thing is that I, I very much felt that laughter was part of this whole journey from the very onset. Um, there was one thing that was that stood out. Months prior to my getting the diagnosis, I'd been booked for a ladies' lingerie laughter party. Okay. And I just, uh, it was for, you know, a corporate event and I was really excited. I thought, yes, you know, you know, corporate, you know, corporate person, you know, event, this is going to be loads and loads of fun. And as it transpired, this particular event was booked three days before my major surgery. So I didn't know what 
you know, this, what they were going to find from the major surgery or, or anything. And the last thing in the world I felt like or wanted to do was laugh. It's like, you must be joking, you know. I think, you know, God's got a good sense of humour that um the, that I was given a laughter session to run a few days before surgery. And I went into the session feeling like, you know, I was sort of weighed down by a ton of, you know, lead, mm. you know, bricks, Um you know, and I'd explain the health benefits of laughter to these people, but basically my, my head and my heart was, was elsewhere. But then when we actually started to do the laughter session and after the laughter session I thought, wow, actually this is the first time since I was given the diagnosis that I am feeling a little bit lighter and brighter and, mm-hmm. and honestly it helped me psychologically prepare for that surgery. I was that much more prepared um, and, and less less encumbered. Um, by the enormity of it and so what as I say I mean I couldn't laugh after the operation even if I wanted to which I I, I didn't especially want to so there was that sort of first example of forced laughter and then after surgery I knew intuitively that laughter would be a great thing but I physically couldn't do it so I started to look at different ways that I could sort of get that sort of endorphin you know, those happy hormones effects. So I became um, quite a, an, an advocate of smiling mindfulness. So that's, so, you know, smiling and laughter, they're, they're similar. I mean, smiling doesn't have the aerobic, com, you know, component and all that, but essentially it is an amazing way to change your physiology. And it wasn't just about keeping the smile on my face. It was about sitting with this smile and, and essentially letting this smile travel down, especially into the areas like, you know, where I'd had the surgery and, and I found it very, very um, therapeutic to do. And one of the things about laughter um, is that it, it releases endorphins, as does smiling. And endorphins are our body's endogenous morphine. They're one of our pain, our body's, you know, pain management system. So when you can tap into your endorphins, you're actually tapping into your body's pain management system. Um, so, and when you are in that moment of whether you're smiling or laugh, laughing or any sort of form of positive type of response, necessarily you can't be in a negative state of mind. And that's really important because you can change the way that you feel just by placing a smile on your face. So if you have got fear and if you have got, you know, sadness, you can trigger, you can actually trigger an endorphin response through just a smile Mm. or a laugh or thinking about things that you're grateful for rather than, you know, getting sort of swept up into that world of all of those F words the fear, the frustration, you know. So mm. we, I remember in, in undergraduate psychology, they they talked to us about uh, biofeedback, mm. the idea that like just the smiling itself sort of sends messages to the brain. Well, I guess we're in a good mood. Time yes. to release the endorphins. That's exactly right. It feels like based on your description just now, like of um, your body's what, endogenous morphine systems. It's like uh, I have this 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 again this conceptions and frameworks it seems like the smiling therapy and the laughter therapy is is learning the phone number of your own internal drug dealer oh that's so good <laughs> he's there it gives you more food after yeah. a run sometimes yeah Why not get- i do like that line i might have to borrow it i <laughs> but you're absolutely right because we, we we're tapping into those neurotransmitters mm-hmm. and they are a really um potent form of our you know uh, i suppose you know that that those happy hormones um and the, the important thing about um, what you've said is essentially it's, it's not leaving these things to chance because the reality is that if you have been given a cancer diagnosis, if you have been given any sort of form of, you know, bad health diagnosis or if you're going through any form of adversity, you've just been fired from your job or going through a divorce or whatever, you know, stuff happens, the last thing in the world you want to feel like doing, the last natural response would be to smile or to laugh. Like, are you crazy? You know, people mm-hmm. would think you were. But that's during those times, those are the times we especially need to. 
Um, and it's we can't leave it to chance. We create those opportunities um, to, you know, to trick our body because, and, and why we do that is because it, the body doesn't like to feel stressed, but it gets so used to it, it doesn't know what to do about it. The body actually likes to sort of feel the effects of, you know, the laughter, the smiling, those endorphins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more we bring a conscious level of awareness and choice to choosing to smile and, and laugh more, the the more the more it becomes natural, the more we rewire our brain that way. And, um, yeah, we, we just naturally um, create a more positive environment where well-being can flourish. When you um, go through these sorts of exercises, is there a concern for the, um, what would you say, like there's, a, there's, this, there's this natural conflict. I think it's, it's with me and with a lot of people about um, exercises like this where part of you is like, you know, smile first and then your body will get the, the message um, versus like a sort of is smiling sincere in that moment and doesn't your body know that you're trying to trick it? Is there like a way that you um, line up, as it were, the the internal with the external? Um, yes. Um, I think smiling, any, any sort of form of of strategy that, that I sort of talk about, if you, if you choose to do it with the right intention, if you're just taking smiling or or laughter, your body cannot think, your body only feels. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as long as you, you're doing it willingly, there actually isn't a difference. If you've got resistance, if you've got inner resistance and that comes, you know, then that may impact on, on the sort of release of endorphins or the, or the impact. Um, but there are, other, there are other strategies. Like I, don't, I don't think that anybody should do anything if it, if it doesn't feel right to them. If mm-hmm. it, um, there are other strategies that, you, that, that, you know, that I recommend that help rewire brain and body to positivity that don't necessarily even require smiling or laughter. And, and they're things like um, conscious gratitude, like having a gratitude practice. And this is all evidence-based stuff. You know, we're talking about things that, you know, focusing on um, Martin Seligman, Professor Martin Seligman's the founder of positive psychology. Mm-hmm. Positive psychologists ask the question, what's going well in your world? As opposed to the traditional psychologists, it's like, well, what's, what's you know, what, what are the problems? What's, what's not going well? So... There, there's been quite a lot of research um, conducted um, with people who have depression or anxiety. And just for a period of weeks, um, it was a 12-week intervention, um, people were asked to make note of three things that went well in their day. Okay. At the beginning or end of their day? Doesn't matter. Okay. And to write them down. So not to just keep it in your head. And the extraordinary thing was, was in a, within a period of weeks, even before the 12 weeks, people were finding that there was a considerable drop in negative effect and an incredible increase in positive effect, okay? So this is a really, really powerful strategy for people when faced with challenges. And it's not waiting until you have these life challenges. It's, it's doing it. From day from today, sort of thing. Thinking about small things that went well in your day. So when you're going through tough times, it's not necessarily going to be about those huge things like you know a work promotion or a, a wedding or an amazing trip overseas. It's it's actually training your brain to look for small things, micro moments of joy. Micro moments of joy can be things like a blue sky day could be, you know, sharing a cup of tea with a friend, um, having a nice, you know, conversation with, with a stranger, whatever it is, it's, it's training our brain to notice mm-hmm. these small things. So it, it sounds too simple, really. But if you start to think about things that are going well, as you said before, like we've got this internal drug dealer going on inside <laughs> and this, this drug dealer is, is sort of saying, hey, I like this or, you know, what I, I, I'm going to think of more things that make me feel, you know, the good. Um, and, and so what that does cumulatively, as I say, it rewires your brain to start to, to notice all of the good things around us that are going well, even 
even in the midst of adversity, even in the midst of challenge. Um, and slowly but surely, what we note, the positive starts to outweigh the negative. When you talk about this um, this training your brain mm. part of the, of this gratitude journaling and something, I'm reminded of um, the this phenomenon in psychology, the figure of ground inversion. Like the, the, the common way it's displayed is, you know that picture of the um, two faces yes. that are also a candlestick? Yes, and yes. That's, um, so that, that's a, a, a demonstration of this where like sometimes you'll look at it and the candlestick is the figure. That's what you're looking at. And yes. also there's some black background. And then suddenly there'll be that figure ground inversion where, oh, there are two black faces of the figure yes. and just that, that space in between them is the background. And it sounds like at least part of what's going on here is by constantly training yourself to notice the good things that are flowing into your life and being grateful for them, you're orienting yourself towards them and you're teaching your brain that those are in fact the figure. That's what what your life is composed of. Oh, and then there's also some stuff we need to work through in the background. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great analogy. Um, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, a lot of the individual coaching work that I do, um, you know, I think we, we, we come to wherever we are with, with our sort of series of, you know, life experiences and, 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 um, and so a lot of us tend to have a degree of scepticism about these things. And if it's things that we can't see, it can be hard to accept. So you were, you know, saying before about, you know, the smiling and that, you know, if it feels fake. There's a simple exercise I get to do with my clients and, and, you know, this is within six weeks or something. You'll see an amazing difference. So do you wear a watch, Ike? No. Okay. Um, okay. Well, if you were to wear a watch, what hand would it be on? Left. Okay, your left. So say you were a watch, a watch wearer and you wore it on your left hand, I would say, okay, Ike, to demonstrate what is actually going on in your brain, we're going to do this exercise um, a physical exercise that each morning, rather than putting your placing your watch on your left wrist, I'm going to ask you to place it on your right wrist. Right, your <laughs> your witch. <laughs> Get your broomstick. Witch. Yeah, you've got a white witch um, to put it on your um, right wrist. And now, initially, that's going to feel a bit awkward because it's not something that you're used to. It's going to be something that you consciously have to think about. It's um, you're probably going to be you know a bit incompetent, um, but over a period of days you'll start to get more competent, and then in a period of weeks you won't even be thinking about it. All of a sudden you're going to be reaching to put your your watch on your right wrist. Now that's exactly what's happening with when we're trying to choose different ways in which we place our attention. That's what's happening in our brain. Um, so it's. Um, yeah, these things are happening, it, but it's a matter of making a conscious choice, not just, you know, it's like anything. What, whatever you practice, that's what you get good at. Mm -hmm. If you practice fear, if you practice stress, you get really, really good at it. If you practice joy, if you practice, you know, looking for good things, if you practice, you know, wearing your watch on a different hand, you get good at it. But it doesn't happen by chance. It happens with can some sort of you know effort and then there's there's a nice way of sort of, of putting the way that all of this sort of fits in we go from unconscious incompetence mm -hmm. okay i don't know if you've heard of this so unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to conscious competence to unconscious competence so it's a four phase thing so necessarily it's not going to be that you're going to wake up the next morning and you're going to be a new different person it's not like I woke up um, you know one day and all of a sudden I was a different person it's just slowly but surely nudging you know in the right direction right and at first like you're you're training yourself to notice all the parts of, of you or the parts of your life that aren't in accordance with this correct you said that's the transition from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. Yes, unconscious com inco unconscious competence. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I'm doing anything wrong. Through to oh wow, look at all the things I'm yeah, doing wrong. and that's it's about growing our awareness, right. and that's where the mindfulness comes in. 
you know, mindfulness isn't like necessarily just a five or ten minute practice. Mindfulness is a whole approach that we have to use in our life. Mm. Did you find that there was a point when you were fighting the little C? Or fight is fight a word we use? What, I don't particularly like, like it. But What's the word that you like? I was dealing with it, dealing facing with it. it. I don't know. Facing. I've got a whole chapter in my book about um, the, the the language of cancer. Um, that um, you know, it's it's one of these conditions that tends to be attract um, a warmongering language. You mm. know, and and that. And for some people that might be okay, but essentially it's not something that people choose to, to, to fight, um, you know, and then there's the, you know, they fought the battle, they lost the battle. It's a lot of guilt there. Um, you, you know, uh, there's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I find it quite problematic. But um, what, what sort of framing do you prefer? Um, well, for example, okay, so I chose little C instead of big C. I really don't like the term cancer survivor. I'll take cancer thriver any day. Um, and, yeah, those sorts of things. I sort of I, I sort of, uh, punched at that <laughs> when, I was, when I was doing the intro at the top. I was like, I probably shouldn't say cancer survivor. I don't think that would go that well. So I'm glad to hear that. Was there, is there a... Um, is there a metaphor that, that that works really well for you, like moving through a dark forest or like descent into the underworld or something? Was there a was there a narrative structure that you felt in that time or coming out of it? Good question. Um, I had a very insightful dream before I had the operation, which which probably answers your question, but not really, in that this particular dream, um, and I'm not a vivid dreamer, mm-hmm. but this dream was something else. And from memory, I was um, on the top of a, like a mountain with, you know, these big sort of um, pine trees. And I noticed that there was another mountain in the horizon and my two boys were on that horizon. And the only way that I could essentially get to them was, well, I had to go down the mountain sort of thing to get to them and back up. Um, but there was a clearing. You know how they have these, like, clearings? So, I know, it's a dream. Um, I slid down, I slid down the, um, like, a fire, like, you know, those fire breaks. And, fire breaks? you know, you know, in the mountains, they, 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 they deforest um, a portion, oh, a strip. Yeah. So the bushfires. So essentially right by me was this, this like fire break as such. So I, I was um, on my back just sliding down and m- more or less hovering and I got like a few sort of, you know, bits of, um, uh, you know, a few abrasions and there, at one point there was a, I was going through this um, cloud of, of insects and they were really like it was a thick cloud but then, you know, I got through it and then I sort of ended up right, you know, with my boys and, you know, we had a big embrace and all as well. So that sort of was the, that to me was really a powerful um, sign that I had that, yes, I was going to have some sort of, you know, there was some, going to be some periods where I didn't necessarily think I would emerge or that there was going to be it were times that, you know, I didn't scathe entirely, you know, without some sort of um, pain or discomfort. But at the end of the day, I was fine and I, you know, was there, you know, for my, for my mm-hmm. kids. So that, yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question. That's, but that's beautiful. And so there's, you're on you're on one mountain peak yeah. and you can see your boys on the other mountain peak. Yeah. And although you're sort of as high as them now, you actually have to go down Correct. through the forest yes. back up to them. Yes. Was there a moment for you when you were, let's say, in that forest after the dream, when you were yes. sort of living it out, when you sort of felt like, oh, I can see the clearing at the end of the forest, like I'm going to get through this? Yes, there, there, there were. And there were also those moments where I was sort of being attacked by these like insects. You know, I did, you know... It was a it was a what, five and a half hour surgery the first operation, um, and you know just it's a big operation and then you're left with this stoma. Um, so you know there's things just happen. You know it's like you have like a life changing event like this and it's mm-hmm. not like it's life as you know it doesn't exist anymore. It's it's a new it's a new direction, and there's you know things that happen that that challenge you and um are difficult to go through but when you have that sort of knowledge that you just have to believe it that 
everything will work out in the end. You just can deal with whatever comes your way. So the so to you the insects were sort of reflected in the five and a half hour surgery. Mm, I don't know if about that, um, but but afterwards, you know, there were there there were various hiccups you have. I mean, yeah. as I say, it's 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 like any form of you know major surgery. Um, there's 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 issues that you know you 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 deal with afterwards. Yeah, sure. When when did you realize that what you wanted to do afterwards was different to what you were doing before? Um, so. Essentially, probably during that year, um, that sort of year of the surgeries and, and, and recovery, um, interestingly enough, the day that I got the, the initial diagnosis and then I was sent to have a CAT scan to, you know, just to see if there was any evidence that the cancer may have spread, that exact same day I was offered a tenured position, um, a teaching position at La Trobe University. Wow. So that was a lovely sign to get. But during that year, um, I quite don't know how I did it now, but I sort of went back to teaching sort of within a few months and it was very draining. Um, apart from the fact there was a, well, for me, it was it was a lengthy commute. I mean, some people might not find it, but it was an hour there and back, um, you know, and traffic and, you know, all that. And, and I realised that um, as much as I loved the student interaction, that's not all that, you know, being an academic is about. You know, there's a lot of essay marking and bureaucracy, you mm. know, forms and this, that and the other and, you know, it's easy to pass a bad student. No, I won't say that. But anyway, um, <laughs> so um, I realised that um, I, as much as I believe what um, I was teaching was very important, it wasn't really my true self. My true self was really, you know, when I, I felt, you know, when I ran laughter programs you know, I was so much more energised than, than that. So I really started to, you know, during the that year of, of all of that, started to really evaluate um, what my true life purpose was. And it's quite a powerful thing that happened to me. Um, about, ooh, about six months, six months after the, no, sorry, 12 months after the first surgery, I had the annual CAT scan where they, you know, check, you know, everything. Anyway, so I had the follow-up appointment with my colorectal specialist and he said to me, you know, everything looks fine, Roz, except um, there's something that's like showing on your liver. It's probably fine, but I think you should get it checked out. So... Essentially, my heart sank way below the floor and I immediately made a follow-up appointment to see the gastroenterologist who um, saw the, you know, the scan results and said, um, yeah, listen, it, it probably is a benign liver cyst um, and, you know, I see a lot of them but, you know, really to make sure you need to have an MRI. But, you know, there's no great urgency. So... I decided that I didn't want to have to deal with this. You know, I prepared myself like, you know, so strong, you know, for the for the first surgery, etc. And I'd heard those words before from his lips before. It should be fine, but da, da, da. probably nothing. Yeah, probably nothing. Um, so I put off um, having the MRI, but during that time I actually sort of developed almost like a post-traumatic stress and quite a lot of anxiety mm. and fear because I just thought, oh, my gosh, what if it is? You know, I don't know if I can deal with it. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so I was sort of left um, with sort of various heart palpitations, which is a natural response really. And anyway, I decided... Um, to finally face my fears and have the MRI. And thank God everything was fine. It is a benign liver cyst. Um, but these palpitations just didn't go away overnight. And basically I think the week after I'd had that MRI, I was booked to start a new series of laughter um, activities in aged care as mm-hmm. part of a research program. And I thought I should be responsible and go see my GP and tell them that I've been having these issues. And so once again, the GP said, 
probably fine but listen why don't you we'll just we'll just fit you with a heart monitor for 24 hours just to make you know just to make sure so of course that um happened to be the the 24 hours that i was booked to go to the (laughs) aged care so i dressed up in a collar high so that nobody could see that these like cords you know that you know the the wires and I conduct this laughter session for these old people. And honestly, I think I felt twice the age of these people. And <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, so then um, I like ran. It was a really, really bizarre undercover it was, agent for Exactly, us. exactly. Like you're wearing a wire and yeah. you teach the old people to laugh. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But once again, definitely felt better after the session. And. Uh, Anyway, got the um, the heart, you know, returned the heart monitor, and you know there was no evidence of, of any, you know, anything nasty. And the next day, I actually was booked for another session for um, this, you know, private school in Melbourne, private girls' school to to run a session um, with a uh, hundred or so girls. Okay. So it's quite a lot of. You know, people and like you know, with laughter, it's very contagious, and you really have to sort of like try and you know. Are you allowed to laugh at this point, or are you still not? Allowed to laugh? <laughs> I'm allowed to laugh, but um, in order to facilitate groups, especially if it's laughter, you can I I don't have a strong enough voice to to be able to command a hundred excitable girls. So when I arrived at the venue, I said, "Is it possible to get you know hands free mic?" And if they, yeah, of course, and they'd expected to. So the they had the um, their their person um, you know present me with this thing and he says listen here here is the hands free system do you mind we need to we need to wire you up so oh literally twenty four hours after I'd had the heart monitor I get wired up for a sound system <laughs> and it was like the world just sort of like you know stopped still you know the heavens sort of opened up and this booming voice sort of came down and said Ros it's quite simple. You continue the way that you've been doing. You can have a day like yesterday with a heart monitor and things like that, or you choose laughter and you will be supported and all will be well. You can have your sound system. And that's sort of when I really had that epiphany moment and I said, right, that's it. I'm going to be, as soon as I can, I'm resigning from my teaching job and I'm dedicating my life to spreading laughter and joy and positivity. Fantastic. And so now that's that's come forward into your uh, into the workshops you do with Laugh Life Wellbeing. Yes. With these these workshops, tell me a bit about them. Uh, I run. I mean, essentially, I tailor workshops according to whatever the group needs. So, say for example, I do quite a lot of nursing conferences. So, a lot of my workshops they will be a lot of me talking, but there will be various experiential um, things. So, if we did a laughter wellness program. I talk about the health benefits of laughter and things like that, and then we would do an active laughter yoga session. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about um, preventing burnout, then I'll talk about various strategies like um, conscious gratitude, mindfulness, um, smiling, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, or some people would just want a straight mindfulness program, so I would introduce various mindfulness techniques um, that people can um, adapt to their own needs. Uh, or it could be, um, you know, I spend a lot of time um, working with people, helping to reframe, you know, challenges, to introduce some sort of lightness and positivity, you know, helping it, helping free our brain of some of that trauma that we unconsciously or consciously carry through reframing the way that we view past events. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And you're, you're working currently on your second book. Yes, this one is focused on something called brownout. Yes, <laughs> I, I don't think I've heard the phrase. No, it's it's I've only, it's it's not very well known, but I think it's a really appropriate term. Um, essentially, brownout is it's actually um, a term borrowed from the electricity industry. So when a light um, flickers just before it dies, that flickering stage is is known as the brownout stage, or if you. Um, are in a particular regional area and it's like a really hot day and you've got everybody's got the air conditionings running and this that, and the other you know when the power sort of like goes in and out and sometimes mm-hmm. so that's also known as the brownout phase or when a star just before it dies that's also the brownout phase so it, the, the way I sort of the, the why I like it is 
I actually like the star analogy because I think that we all have our inner sparkle um, and our, you know, our purpose, you know, to shine in this world. But, you know, things happen and it can dimmer our sparkle. So if we actually start to recognise when our sparkle is, is slightly dimmed, we can do something about it before it actually we burn out. Mm-hmm. Um, society is geared towards um, curing after the events happen rather than preventing. Mm-hmm. So I like to speak to people about signs, um, you know, signs brand, you know, that indicate people may sort of be in that sort of brownout phase so they can do something about it to stop the burnout. Cool. Do you have uh, any tips that people could use at home on preventing burnout? I do. I mean, again, it's, it's about the first step is to know what I suppose brownout is and what burnout is. So, you know, it's a difference between, you know, on occasion not feeling like going to work to being absolutely thrilled when you get the flu that you don't have to go to work for two mm. weeks sort of thing. Or um, So it's, it's about recognising those signs. And then it's about, okay, brownout or burnout. It's very negative, just like disease or anything. It's, it's very negative. So how do you counter, you know, counter negativity? You counter it with positivity. So, you know, there, that's where I sort of, you know, would discuss a various sort of techniques to enhance positivity. So, you know, incorporating into your day three things that went well incorporating into your day some form of checking in with yourself to see how you're breathing, to see how you're feeling, to see, you know, have you shared a smile with someone today? You know, do you need a hug sort of thing? Um, or, you know, those sorts of those sorts of strategies. So enhancing positive strategies to um, counter that negativity. And most importantly, to identify what makes you shine. Everybody has their unique purpose on this world, Mm -hmm. in this world. And if you're not aligned, if you don't know what your core, you know, values are, your strengths are, and if you're not using them, how can you shine? So, you know, there's something I do with people and I, um, if anyone, you know, wants to know, it's um, the VIA character um, strength survey. So it's actually assessing your signature strengths. It highlights your top signature strengths and then you sort of get these strengths. They're not like talents like, you know, being able to dance or juggle. These are things like, you know, appreciation of beauty or love of learning or curiosity. Are you using these strengths on a daily basis? If not, how can you? And, you know, these are the sorts of things that counter burnout. Cool. Um, We only have a few minutes left here, but something you mentioned earlier, which I found really interesting, was um, the idea of a smiling mindfulness exercise. Yeah. I was wondering if you'd like to uh, spend the last few minutes here guiding us through one of these I'd love to. And you've got a lovely smile for all these podcast listeners. (laughs) Okay. I'd love to. It's one of my favourite things in the world. Um, So just um, wherever you are now, unless you're driving, please don't close your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) If you're driving, keep your eyes open. Yes, do this at another time. Um, So just um, if if you're feeling comfortable, um, just close your eyes wherever you are whether you're seated or or lying, and just taking some time to connect to your breath, feeling the cool air as it enters your nostrils and the slightly warmer air as you exhale. Breathing in and then out. And I'd now like you to bring attention to a smile. And place a smile on your face. It might help you to think of a time in your life when you were unconditionally loved or that everything in your world was going as well as it possibly could. And just sit with this smile on your face and note how it makes you feel. How your eyes feel. How your cheeks feel. How your lips feel. Some gratitude for this beautiful smile. Perhaps there's one word that comes to mind when you have this smile on your face. And I'd like you now to 
breathe this smile a little bit more deeply down into your body so it's now residing in your heart space. And this smile is expanding in your heart space, filling it with joy and love. Inhaling the smile in and sharing it even more deeply down into your body so it's now residing in your belly. This beautiful, beautiful smile encircling your belly, helping free it of any anxieties or any fears. This smile that has travelled from your head to your heart, to your belly, breathing it in and sharing it throughout your whole body so it's as if every cell, every tissue, every muscle, every fibre in your body is smiling and note how it makes you feel. All those endorphins are flooding your system and know that at any time of day, no matter what is going on in your external environment, just by placing a heartfelt smile on your face, you can change your internal environment. And perhaps there's one area of your body now that you feel you'd like to just intensify this feeling of the smile. Just send that smile to that part of the body. Let it expand and fill with joy and with love. And then when you're ready, if you just Open your eyes. <laughs> Thank you. Such a pleasure. <laughs> you know what they say, a laugh is a smile at birth, so you can sort of value add laughter at the end. <laughs> <laughs> a, laugh, a laugh is a smile. That bursts. A laugh is a smile that bursts. <laughs> Beautiful. Rosbem Moshet, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> and you. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.